We are in the midst of this, this sermon series. We're in John's gospel. And uh, this morning we turn to John's uh, gospel, chapter 12, verses 36 all the way to 50. 36 all the way to 50. And we kind of stumble into a, to a, a challenging teaching. Remember last week we were at that, that Palm Sunday moment where Jesus is walking into Jerusalem and, uh, and, and, and the, the, the crowds are waving their branches and, and singing these praises. But now this morning, Jesus is by himself and people don't believe. So let's learn, uh, let's learn more about this. Uh, John's Gospel chapter 12, verse 27 to uh, 36 rather to 50. Let's, let's hear now God's word. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for the fear of the Pharisees, they didn't confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I've come into the world as a light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. So before we jump into our lesson this morning, I want to tell you a story about a father and two sons. The firstborn son was faithful. Um, he had a first child syndrome. He was a born leader. First up in the morning, always on time, house chores impeccable. If there was a son to hang your hat on, this was the child. He was a father's dream. The legacy of the family was certainly going to be resting on him. But the second born, he was a, a different story. This younger child was anything like his brother. They grew up on a farm and he hated farm life. He partied late into the night, slept in until noon, seldom lifted a finger. To put it blunt, he was lazy and rebellious. The boy couldn't hardly manage a handshake, let alone look his father in the eye. In fact, he proved his true character when, when one day he told his father, he said, I'm done with you. I'm done with this family. I'm done with this town. This place is a trash heap. I'm out. He told his dad, he said, you can take the farm and sell it for all I care. I'm not coming back and I want my money. Well, from birth, the father had promised the farm to his boys, but not like this. An inheritance comes after your father dies, but he's still living. Even so, he was a man of his word. He loved both of his sons the same, and so with tears in his eyes and a quivering lip, he sold half the family property and gave the proceeds to the son. You've heard the story before, though I took some liberty with it. Remember what we call the young brother? The prodigal. 
He ran from home and then he squandered the family wealth such that he lived this hedonistic, self-centered, cold-hearted life. We know all about the prodigal son. But since it's Father's Day, let me ask you, you ever wonder why the father just let his son go? I mean, the dad had some serious leverage, right? He had cash in hand, money talks. Why not hold it over him? Why didn't he bargain with him or keep him around a bit longer? Make him earn it for once. But this father, he not only watched his son walk out the front door, he paid him for it. And the reason that I start with that story is that our lesson in John's gospel is all about the prodigal sons in our lives. There were two kinds of people in this scripture. There were those who put their faith in Christ, in other words, those who made their home on the family farm, and then there were those who refused. Look at this again in verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Which begs a really important question. Why do some come to a saving faith and others in their hardness of heart run? You know, we all know at least one prodigal in our lives, right? And so in our lesson this morning, Jesus has just made this triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He's performed miracles all over Galilee and Judea, signs and wonders sort of sprinkled in along the way. But now it seems almost as if in this moment, the mission of Christ has hit a wall. Even with all the miracles and all the stories and the teachings, we're told still they didn't believe. Look at this again in verse 36. John tells us Jesus has left the city, he's departed from the people, and he's hidden himself. Jesus retreats as the people refuse to put their faith in him. How is it that you, you walk with this man who performs these miracles, you hear all the lessons, you are with the, 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 the Jesus Christ, the, the Son of God in the flesh, side by side, and yet you refuse to believe? It seems to me we, we live in a world that is increasingly full of prodigal sons and daughters. 2020 marked the, the first time in U.S. history that those belonging to the church now fall below 50% in our nation. It was 1937. At that time, it was 73%. Today, it's now down to 47% of those polled nationwide. You know, it wouldn't take long for us to find this story playing out somewhere in our lives in this very moment, right? Maybe it's a family or a friend, maybe it's your own child or sibling or, or parents. We look around us and you can sort of see the storm brewing. We become caught up in the same hedonistic, pleasure-seeking, self-directed way of life. There's clearly this, this hyper-changing world that's unfolding before our eyes that seems to have increasingly set Jesus to the side. Prodigals, prodigals believe we're a self-made people. We don't need a savior. As you open up the scripture this morning, it seems that at first, maybe Jesus has given up here. He's hiding. He's retreated from the battle. All the signs and wonders didn't do it. The teachings fell on deaf ears. The prodigals are all lined up. And our lesson tells us they still didn't believe in him. But don't get sidetracked because Jesus isn't done. In fact, he's far from it. Christ isn't surprised by this at all. In fact, here's the crazy part. God's word tells us this was part of the plan. In fact, look at this. John says the reason those crowds refused to believe is not just because of their sin or rebellion, but because God hardened their hearts. For Isaiah said he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. Well, now we're in deep. 
So if we're keeping with the same analogy, not only does the father allow the prodigal son to leave and walk out the door, but the father has hardened his heart. Therefore, John tells us they could not believe. This is a prophecy taken all the way from Isaiah 6.10. It's one of the most quoted prophecies in the entire New Testament. It's used five times over in every gospel plus the book of Acts. We're told God hardened the heart of the people. And just so that we see this is nothing new, this is not a new concept. Look at this from Deuteronomy. It explains the exact same situation, except for this time, look at how Moses explained it. With your own eyes, you saw these great trials, those miraculous signs and great wonders. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a mind that understands or eyes or ears to hear. I think about that famous quote from John 3.16, right? That God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. Whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. So why in the midst of that good news would the Lord harden hearts and blind eyes? God does this more than you think. You know, we're told in the Old Testament that he hardened Pharaoh's heart. Remember that? More than once. The entire story of the Exodus is God's people getting out of slavery in Egypt and yet blocked by Pharaoh's calloused heart. In the book of Acts, at the very beginning of the church, God literally strikes Paul blind on the road to Damascus. Why? Look at this in Romans 9. So then he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Anyone familiar with the, the author Philip Yancey? Philip Yancey changed my life decades ago with, with a couple of his books. The, the most important in my life is What's So Amazing About Grace. And if you haven't heard of him, look him up. He's an incredible man of the Lord. But Philip tells this story in one of his books about the Ukrainian election back in 2004. And the, the exit polls in this election had clearly shown that the, the challenger of the current president was the victor. But the state-run television decided they'd manipulate the people into believing the challenger had lost. So they published this deliberate lie on Ukrainian TV in support of the existing regime. And their plan was locked in, right? They had it dialed up. The whole thing would have worked except for they overlooked one thing. See, in the background, they had asked an interpreter to sign for the death she had gotten wise to the ruse, and so as deceit played out all over the Ukraine, this is what she signed. Look at this. I'm addressing all the deaf citizens of Ukraine. Don't believe what they say. They're lying, and I'm ashamed to translate these lies. Yushkno is our president. And soon enough, with those hands and by those signs, the deaf citizens of the Ukraine rose up and eventually led what we now know as the Orange Revolution. Just think about the signs and the miracles of Christ for a minute. Why is it that some of us see the signs for what they are and put our faith in Jesus Christ and some don't seem to get it at all? Why is it that one stays with the father on the farm and the other goes to live the wayward life? Verse 37, again, though he had done so many signs before him, they refused to believe. I have to think that in God's love and in his mercy and with his gospel open, he's, he's doing something good even when we can't see it. Like, could it be that the father allows the, the prodigal to run from home, that he, he hardens hearts that have chosen sin so as to leave us in the consequence of our own game plan somehow that we might turn to him? You know, if he hardens a heart, we can be rest assured that, that he has righteous and perfect reasons for doing so. And I say that because a, a hardened heart always reflects the rejection that we had given Jesus to begin with. 
Christ says in our lesson, some hearts will remain that way. He said, I won't be the judge. My word judges them. They heard the gospel. It fell on deaf ears. They, they saw the signs. They refused to believe. But I also have to think that somehow, even in those hardened hearts, God is pursuing us with his love still. Our prayer should be that he would take a brick of a heart, even the, the hardest of stone, and move us back to the healing of Jesus Christ. In other words, maybe in deliberate choice of our sin, God leaves us to it in his love. The book of Romans says it like this, therefore God gave them over to their sinful desires. Sometimes it's, it's only in the state of our disrepair that we find ourselves broken and then return to him. In 1969, a book called Parents and Teenagers first coined the phrase helicopter parent. Anyone ever heard of that before? The idea came from teens who said that their, their parents would hover over their schoolwork uh, all the time at home. By 2010, the term went viral and the concept was so well known that by 2011, the official dictionary term was added in Webster's Online. Helicopter parenting, as you know, is, is that which keeps so closely, hovers so closely over our children that when they finally graduate and they, they become adults, they don't know how to function apart from their parents. We've made ourselves so responsible for our children's decisions and their success and failure that they never learned how to do it on their own. And things today have actually progressed even further. Today, psychologists have left the helicopter analogy behind and they now call it something called snowplow parenting. The snowplow technique works like this. A parent no longer hovers over their child. No, now instead they push all the obstacles and the difficulties, the hard decisions out of the way. While it's true that Jesus might have removed all the barriers to our sin, our God is anything but a helicopter snowplow God. In fact, our scripture tells us that the Lord allows those to sit in the sin and their broken choices. He blinds their eyes and hardens their hearts. But why? I've always been captured by the story of the prodigal son. You know, neither child is perfect. The older son, he has his own limitations. He's got pride and entitlement at play. But when the wayward son leaves home, for some reason, we always shift all of our attention to him. I mean, for whatever reason, his, his father allows it, right? He, he does nothing to stop him. He leaves his son to his own wayward choices. And his hardness of heart now takes over. We watch in the story as his heart begins to lead him down a, a path into a world he could have never imagined. It's cringeworthy. First, the younger son sets off to a distant country, we're told. He wants to get as far away from dad as possible. And then almost immediately, he begins to squander the inheritance in wild living, sinful living, reckless living. He has no concern for anyone but himself. But then a, a drought comes over the land, remember? Remember? And in that devastation, the son loses everything. He's so destitute, he's, he's so poor that he winds up working in eight to five back on a farm again of all places. He's crawled back to the only thing he knew. This time he gets to feed the pigs. And get this, he's so hungry, he begins to crave the same pods that the pigs are now feasting on in their slop. He's hit such rock bottom, he's hit so hard that the leftovers for the swine become desirable to him. And in that hardness of heart, in God's time, it clicked. Hebrews 12, 6 tells us, God disciplines those whom he loves. There's some who will tell you, I've read them in the commentaries over the last few weeks, that a hard heart cannot be repaired. 
That once God hardens the heart, that's it, they're done. I have to say though, I'm not so sure. Even Pharaoh relented, right? And let God's people go. Even Paul, who was persecuting and murdering Christians in the blindness of his eyes, even he repented. We're told when the younger brother hit the bottom, he, quote, came to his senses, went running home and confessed to the father. And now with the love that only a father can have for his son, a celebration gets thrown for the one come back home. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Say it with me, was blind, but now I see. God's desire is that we would turn from this wayward path and trust in him, that maybe somehow as he leaves us in our sinful choices, we would experience the weight of it such that we would turn and believe. But we know our scripture tells us not every prodigal comes home. That's the hard reality of the scripture, right? Not every hard heart is softened. Not every eye turns to Christ. Not every ear heeds his word. Matthew twenty two fourteen, Jesus says, many are called, few are chosen. So as we wrap up our time this morning, I wanna offer just, just three takeaways for us this week as we think about the prodigals in our lives. And the first one is this. They're not on the screen, so you gotta listen carefully. The first one is that we might take a heart exam. You know, before we judge the speck in our prodigal's eye, we should probably look at the log in our own. And here's the test that God's word, I think, offers us this morning. Look at this in verse 43. Here's how you can test your heart. They loved the glory that came from man more than the glory that came from God. We're told that these Pharisees, much like the older brother, they, they believed now, right? but they wouldn't confess it aloud. They, they were too caught up in their own glory. They, they believed themselves to be above any kind of public confession in Jesus, scared of the consequences. Here's another way we might ask the question, how often do you think about what God thinks about you compared to what others think about you? That's a revolutionary kind of heart shift, right? To be liberated from what others think about you so much so that you are caught up in what he thinks of you. Which leads me to my second point, and that is once we've checked our own hearts, we commit to praying for the prodigal heart in our lives. Who is it? Who is the prodigal? You know, so often we want to fix things, right? We want to helicopter parent or, or snowplow dad the thing until it's fixed. If we just say the right words, maybe do the right things, we'll get them back but it's God who softens the heart. I think one of the most bold, but, but most difficult prayers we could pray is, Lord, do what you need to do to bring him home. And we ask God to do this because we know that's, that's what God does. Ezekiel eleven nineteen says it like this, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I'll put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Which brings me to my final point, and that is that as we do that, this is the hard part. We trust in the Lord even when you can't fully understand his plan. Man, for some of us, the, the prodigal son is really personal, right? The, the fact that God would harden that heart is a tough pill. It's Father's Day, and maybe you have one of your own prodigals right now. We, we want them to come to a saving faith in Christ, and we, we desperately long for them to come home again. But I'm reminded even of the thief on the cross, who lived his entire life calloused, cold-hearted path, who in his very last breaths came to life in Christ. 
We're told Isaiah said these things about a hardened heart and blind eyes because he saw God's glory and spoke of him. Somehow, even when we can't see it, even when we don't understand it, even when we, 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 we wonder, has Christ given up? Has he retreated and went back into the woods? This is our encouragement this morning. His plan is still moving. His ways are still perfect. His pursuit is still chasing. Second Peter tells us his desire is that everyone would turn from their ways and come to repentance in him. And yet some, some will remain with hard hearts. This week, here's, here's our invitation. Do a heart exam. Then pray for the hearts of those around you. And as you do that, trust in the goodness of the Father, even if those who you love don't. Let's pray. Will you pray with me? God, your word tells us we like sheep, all of us have gone astray. Lord, and we know had it not been for your saving grace, for your regenerating faith in our hearts, Lord, we would all be like those sheep. So God, we thank you for a father's love for a love that, that's, that's hard to even comprehend, a love that would send his one and only son to die for us. Lord, we ask this morning that you would first help us to look within ourselves for the, the hardness of our hearts. God, that we would give them to you, that as you say in Ezekiel, we, we just pray, Lord, that you would make our hearts a heart of flesh. Make us a people that chase after you. But then, God, we, we do, we pray for those in our lives who have not seen you yet. Lord, who have watched the miracles play out, who have heard scriptures spoken to them, but still struggle in faith. So, God, we, we pray, we, we ask, God, that you would do what it takes to bring them home. Lord, we say we're a church to call home, God, and, and we ask that we would be a people that would be willing to recon, be, be a, a reconciling, welcoming presence but Lord, in the meantime, we know we're not just called to open the door. But Lord, help us to lead them to you. In Jesus' name, we trust and pray all God's people said, amen.